Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. So most of you have probably heard of Billy Graham, right? Uh, The famous evangelist, a guy who traveled all over the world speaking to large groups of people sharing the good news about Christ. Uh, Billy Graham, it's estimated, spoke to over 210 million people live during the course of his lifetime in 185 countries. And this is a guy who was a personal advisor to every president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. And yet, in spite of his fame, he was humble. He was devoted to his wife. Uh, he was a champion of racial reconciliation. And he was true. He was true to Jesus until the day he died three years ago at age 99. Uh, but Billy, as his friends called him, uh, Billy had a friend. Charles Templeton, a fellow evangelist who eventually wandered away from Christ. Now, now, Charles was a great communicator. Some say he was a better preacher than Billy was. He also preached all around the world to large crowds of people. He and Billy Graham started a youth organization together called Youth for Christ, crisscrossed the country, speaking to arena-sized crowds of young people about Jesus. Eventually, Uh, Charles settled down into a church, started a church, became the pastor, but then he began to have doubts. He had doubts about God, doubts about the Bible, doubts about Christians. And one time he went to his doctor because he had chest pains, and the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Your problem is you got stress in your life. And he realized the stress was the result of trying to live a faith he no longer believed. So he gave it up, and he walked away. In 1996, he wrote a book called Farewell to God. And this was a major defection. I mean, this made the national news. But the fact of the matter is, most of us know people, ordinary people, friends of ours, who at one point had a vibrant relationship with God, but who no longer follow Christ. They've drifted away. Maybe the people who've drifted away, maybe they're members of our family who used to sit around the dinner table and read the Bible together. Maybe they're people who got baptized at Christ Community Church. Maybe it's someone who was in our community group, someone who led in worship on our stage. You know, somebody who used to talk excitedly about Jesus at work and no more. No more, they've drifted away. Maybe the person you're thinking of who's drifted away is you. You've been doing a slow drift. For for years, this has created a serious debate among theologians. They've wrestled with the question, what is the spiritual status of a person who previously professed faith in Christ, but who no longer follows Jesus? Does that person still possess God's salvation? Do they still possess forgiveness, eternal life, or have they forfeited it? This is an issue that the writer of Hebrews, the New Testament epistle of Hebrews, addresses head on. If you brought a Bible with you, I hope you did, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're watching online, you could push pause and go pick up a Bible. We're in the fourth week 
of a six-part Bible Savvy series. We call it Bible Savvy because it tracks with Christ Community Church's daily Bible reading schedule. And if you haven't picked up one of those yet, you can get it online. Our goal, our mega goal this year is to make a Bible reader out of everybody. Okay, because this is how you engage in a relationship with God. So we want you to dig stuff out of the scripture for your your own life. Now, the Bible schedule, reading schedule, is currently in the book of Hebrews. So every week when you hear a sermon on the weekend, you'll be reading the, the passages that sermon is based on the following week. The New Testament epistle where we are right now on our reading schedule was written by an anonymous Christian leader in the first century. And he was addressing a group of Christ followers who had come from a Jewish background. Now a little bit of history here. In the Roman Empire of the first century, Judaism was an acceptable religion. However, it was you know, looked down upon. But it was allowed. Christianity, on the other hand, was seen as a dangerous cult that needed to be stopped. It needed to be stomped out. So if you were a Christ follower, you experienced some heat. Okay, disdain at best, persecution at worst. So these converts from Judaism to Christianity were now rethinking their conversion and some of them were drifting back to Judaism because of the the persecution, because of the heat. So the question that arose was, would they lose their salvation if they did that? The writer of Hebrews says, well, you're asking the wrong question. Okay, what's the right question? The right question is, what's the evidence that a person has saving faith? What's the evidence that a person has salvation? And the writer of Hebrews would say, well, saving faith lasts. Saving faith lasts. So if a person is not currently following Christ, they probably don't have saving faith. You know, unless this is a brief detour, perhaps. But some people then wanted to know, well, did they have saving faith and lost it? Or did they never have the real thing to begin with? And again, the writer of Hebrews would say, what does it matter? If they don't have saving faith now, then they're not saved. Listen to these scriptures from the epistle of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We are Christ's house if indeed, okay, Christ lives in us if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed Okay, this is a, you know, this is an, an if clause, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Can't get much clearer than that. Chapter 5, verse 9, Christ became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So who are the people who have salvation? It's those who continue on in obedience to Christ. Chapter 9, verse 28, Christ will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those who are waiting for him. So saving faith lasts. You know, if you used to have faith in Christ, but you've now drifted away from Jesus, you have no claim on salvation. So how can you make sure that this doesn't happen to you? How can you make sure that this doesn't happen to you? Three directives from our passage today in Hebrews 10. 
You're going to want to jot these down. If you haven't found our notes section yet, there's a notes section on our app. Uh, Number one, directive number one, examine yourself. Okay, examine yourself. If you're open to Hebrews 10, let's begin reading at verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the, the hope we, pro, we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So the writer of Hebrews lays out three marks of saving faith, three marks of faith that lasts. Three, three marks of faith that is not here today and gone tomorrow. It keeps on keeping on. Okay, and then he asks us to, to look for this evidence, these marks in our own lives. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Uh, when I was a young boy, uh, we used to go every summer for three weeks down to Florida. We would vacation down there in the heat the heat of the summer, it was crazy. But we would arrive and uh, my siblings and I, we would hang out all day from sun up to sundown, little white kids getting burnt to a crisp. You know, back then nobody wore uh, any kind of sun protection. You'd burn to a crisp and then you would peel, flake all over, and then you would finally get a golden brown. So when I grew up, I realized I needed to see a dermatologist on a regular basis. And that's what I do these days, twice a year, go to see my dermatologist, making sure that there's no sign of skin cancer there. But my dermatologist tells me every time I go, he says, you know, it's not enough to see me twice a year. In between, you need to examine yourself. Okay, you need to r- routinely look for any evidence of skin cancer. Well, the Bible says, examine yourself. Not, not just for a sign of something bad, but examine yourself to see if there's evidence of something good. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Wow, that's pretty straightforward. Examine yourself. What should you be looking for? Well, three marks of saving faith from the verses I just read to you in Hebrews 10. And by the way, these are not only the evidence of saving faith, they're also the safeguards of saving faith. And what I mean by that is uh, these are the things that ensure that your faith lasts. So here's the the first one. A close relationship with God. A close relationship with God. Look again at the the middle line of today's opening verse, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. 
Confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, if you were here last week and you heard me uh, preach about the responsibilities, the role of the Old Testament high priest and how Jesus now fulfills that role in our lives. The uh, high priest, once a year, would go into the most holy place. This was the inner sanctum, first of the tabernacle, later of the temple. Nobody else could go in there except the high priest, and he could only go in there one day a year, the Day of Atonement. What was in the most holy place? Do you recall? Call it out. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the awesome presence of God. So he would go into the the presence of God. Well, the, the writer of Hebrews says that we ourselves, not just the high priest, but we ourselves can now enter the most holy place. Look at the last line of verse 20. The most holy place, the presence of God has been opened for us through the curtain that is his body, Jesus' body. Now, there's some imagery here for us to understand. Okay, the most holy place was blocked off from the rest of the temple by this huge curtain. It kept everybody out but the high priest. But on the day that Jesus was crucified, on the day that Jesus hung on the cross, on the day that his body was torn open, what happened to the temple curtain? It was torn open from top to bottom. Symbolic of the fact that Jesus' death on the cross opened our access to God, to God's presence. Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sins, making it possible for us to be forgiven so we could now enter into the presence of a perfectly holy God. You get it? Good. And that leads the writer of Hebrews to urge us. Opening line of verse 22, so let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. I mean, if Christ has opened the way to a close relationship with God through his death, then a mark of saving faith has got to be a desire on our part to draw near to God, to get closer and closer in our relationship with him. So how do we do that? Well, it's like any relationship. You know, ask any counselor how to build a stronger relationship and you know, they'll tell you, well, it depends on communication. And so communication with God, it means uh, talking to God. The Bible calls that prayer. It means listening to God. That means reading God's word. And so if there's no interest in praying and in reading the scripture, if we're not growing in our pursuit of God through prayer and the reading of his word, then it calls into question whether or not we've got saving faith because saving faith pursues a closer and closer relationship with God. You know, something else that contributes to that closeness is baptism. I don't know if you saw that at the end of verse 22. The, the, the verse begins, draw near to God, and it ends up with the line, having our bodies washed with pure water. Bible scholars say that's a reference to baptism. You know, baptism is a public declaration that I am now aligned with Jesus. I've surrendered my life to him. I love him with all my heart. And if you truly do love him, then, you know, you won't be embarrassed about going public with him. You know, if you get engaged to someone and you want to keep it a secret, you don't want anybody to know, then it kind of calls into question whether you're really crazy in love with your fiance. So next baptism service, by the way, if you've never gone public, join us. I think it's in, in June, the next time around. 
a closer relationship with God. Evidence is saving faith. Second mark of saving faith, examine yourself for a clear understanding of the gospel. A clear understanding of the gospel. Look again at the opening line of verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Now, in the New Testament, that expression, the hope, is a reference to the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, some people initially, initially connect with Jesus uh, never understanding the gospel. They connect with Jesus because of the side benefits that Jesus brings into their lives. And then when they no longer need those side benefits, they walk away from Christ. Let me use an analogy here to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, Sue and I are getting ready to invite Fernando's Street Kitchen back to our driveway. Okay, so we did this a couple of times last fall. Uh, Fernando's is a, uh, is a food vendor, a good friend of ours. And last fall, we realized that our, our neighborhood, which is usually a pretty friendly place, people hadn't seen each other. We were all isolated in the midst of this quarantine. And so we invited Fernando to set up his grill at the end of our driveway, and we invited all our neighbors to come over, masked, socially distanced, but while they're waiting for their tacos, best tacos in the world, they could just converse with each other. We could build relationships. Now, something amusing happened along the way. Our street is a, a bit of a thoroughfare, and so non-neighbors driving down the street would smell the garlic, the onions, the Mexican spices, and whoop, pull over, park, and get in line for tacos. Now, that didn't bother us at all. You know, we're glad that they came, but we didn't expect those people to build relationships with our neighbors. You know, they weren't there for the same reason the rest of us were, because we were sick and tired of isolation and wanted to get to know each other better. They were there for the tacos. Some people come to Jesus because of the tacos. Okay. Now, what I mean by that more seriously, you know, they come to Jesus because they're trying to restore a marriage or trying to break an addiction. They're trying to find a mission in life or put an end to their loneliness. Or they're, they're, they're sick and they need physical healing. They, they, they need help to make it through a crisis. And I want to tell you, Jesus is good for all that. But those things are not the core of the gospel. You say, what is the core of the gospel? The core of the gospel is that Jesus came to the planet to rescue us, to rescue us from the penalty and the power of sin. How does he do that? Well, he rescues us from the penalty of sin by dying on the cross. He takes the punishment we deserve. The punishment is death. You know, we go our way instead of God's way. God's the giver of life. We disconnect from life. We die. The consequence is death. Jesus takes the death we deserve to die. And when we surrender our lives to him, he offers us forgiveness and new life. He breaks the penalty of sin. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven where he reigns as king of kings. So when you surrender your life to Jesus, what you're doing is you're getting off the throne of your life and you're giving it up to King Jesus. And when you do that, he begins to break the power of sin in your life on a daily basis. He begins to change things out. He begins to replace some of those old moldy behaviors and attitudes and values and priorities and exchange them for his 
values and priorities and behaviors and attitudes and, and so on. So Jesus came as savior to break the penalty of sin, as king to break the power of sin. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand this is the hope that people who have saving faith, look at verse 23, circle the word unswervingly. They hold on to this faith unswervingly. Third mark of saving faith. You know, examine yourself for a commitment to church. A commitment to church, unless you think, well, of course you're going to say that because you're a pastor. <laughs> We're going to go back to the text, see what the writer of Hebrews says, picking it up where we left off, verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Uh, my best friend, yeah, my roommate uh, through college was a dude named John, and John was a wide receiver on the football team. And I remember the first year that we roomed together as uh, Super Bowl came around, I said, so John, who are you going to be cheering for? And John said, I, I don't know who's in the Super Bowl. And I said, you love football and you don't even know who's in the Super Bowl? And I'll never forget his response. He looked at me and he said, Jimmy, I don't watch football, I play football. Let me tell you, when it comes to church, a lot of people watch church. They don't, they're not players. And this is especially true of us during COVID, right? All of us, for a season, we've had to watch online. But the writer of Hebrews would say, don't let that go on too long. Okay, Ver verses 24 and 25, don't give up the pattern of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing it. And if you're, you're watching online right now, I wanna say, I want you back in a live service sometime soon. You know, God wants you back with other believers. This is so critical that we do this. But, but let me tell you something else. Just the fact that you come to an in-person service doesn't make you a player. You can still be a spectator. Which, which is why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 24, he says, you know, we got, when we gather together, we need to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I love the verb spur there. Bible scholars tell us that the word literally means to annoy, <laughs> to provoke. So what we're being told is we got a responsibility to get in each other's face, to say, hey, what are you doing to serve? Are you rolling up your sleeves and participating? Are you becoming a player? I gotta tell you, we got all sorts of opportunities to serve around Christ Community Church, and more so now that we're coming out the other side of COVID. I mean, we got a lot of empty places right now where we need volunteers in Kids World, and we need volunteers as ushers and greeters, and we need volunteers as community group leaders, and all of the people we partner with in the community, community impact partners, you know, at, 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 at uh, homeless shelters and nursing facilities and whatever. They need volunteers right now. Is he going to be a player or are you going to be a watcher? The mark of saving faith is a commitment to church. And by the way, people who wander away from a commitment to the church most often wander away from Christ. They do. So how do you keep this from happening to you? Well, number one, you examine yourself. Do you see the marks of a close relationship with God and a pursuit of that? 
Do you see the, the mark of a clear understanding of the gospel? Do you see the mark of a commitment to church? Examine yourself. Directive number two, break patterns of sin. Break patterns of sin. Let's go back to Hebrews 10. We're going to pick up the passage at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an, an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, Jesus' blood shed on the cross, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yikes. This is a serious passage. You know, anybody who tells you that the, the God of the Old Testament is all fire and brimstone and the God of the New Testament is all love and grace has never read Hebrews 10. You know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they're the same God. And he is both, listen, he is both fire and brimstone. He's a God not to be messed with. He's a God to be taken seriously. And he's a God of love and grace. And this passage here in Hebrews 10, this is kind of the scary side of God, if you would. You know, the writer of Hebrews warns us not to allow patterns of sin to develop in our lives. Look again at verse 26. He's addressing people who keep on sinning. You could underline that. Keep on sinning. After they've received the knowledge of the truth. So sinful habits will undermine a person's walk with Christ. And this is why many people who at one time professed faith in Jesus are no longer following him. Quite frankly, they allowed sin to go unaddressed in their lives, and eventually they walked away from Christ. Now, that's a nice way of putting it. They walked away from Christ, but the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews puts it much more starkly in the verses I just read to you. Look again at verse 29. He says, when habitual sin causes a person to turn away from God, it's like they trample God's son underfoot. It's like they cavalierly toss aside the blood. You see that? The, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for them. It's like they insult the spirit of grace. I mean, this is, this is serious business. When we walk away from Christ, we don't have a savior to pay for our sins. And so who pays? We pay the penalty ourselves. And remember what the penalty is? The penalty is death. It starts a spiritual death on the inside a broken relationship with God. It leads to physical death at the end of this life and it carries on to eternal death in the world to come. Separation from God forever. No wonder the writer of Hebrews refers to it, verse 27, as a raging fire that consumes the enemies of God. That's separation from God forever. And that's why he concludes, verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. So friends, how do we make sure that doesn't happen to us? Well, we need a saving faith that lasts. And that kind of faith will, will regularly prompt us to break the patterns of sin in our lives. Now, please understand, it, it, it's not that we no longer sin. We, we all continue to sin, even after surrendering our lives to Jesus. But if we have genuine saving faith, Scripture teaches that we'll confess that sin as soon as we become aware of it. We will repent of that sin, renounce it, we will seek God's help for breaking the pattern of sin in our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said 500 years ago, I love this analogy. He said, you know, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can't keep them from building a nest in your hair. This assumes, of course, that you've got hair. But in other words, you know, temptations are going to come, and occasionally you might fall for one, but you don't let the birds of sin build a nest in your hair. You break patterns of sin. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Confess and renounce finds mercy, break patterns of sin. Now, let me warn you about three patterns of sin in, in particular. Uh, back in Hebrews 3, verse 13, we were told that our hearts can easily become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Clayton preached on this two weeks ago. Sin is deceitful. Okay, sin is tricky. You know, sin has a way of sneaking into our lives and taking us captive before we even know what's happened to us. So let me warn you about three sins in particular that are especially deceitful to keep an eye out for. You may fall for one of these every once in a while, but don't let it continue. Break the pattern. Okay, the first one I would suggest you keep an eye out for is, is materialism. And Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus describes a farmer who goes out one day with seed to sow and he sprinkles it on his, on his ground and some of it falls on good soil and produces a wonderful crop. Some of it falls on rocky soil and thorny soil and the thorns, the weeds, choke out the life of that plant. And then Jesus goes on to explain this is how it is with us. God sows his word in our lives. Now make sure the soil of your heart is good soil that produces a, a, a good crop. Because if it's weedy, if it's thorny soil, the, the weeds are going to choke out the life of that plant, the spiritual life in you. And then Jesus goes on to identify the thorns he's talking about. And he says, it's the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitfulness of wealth. Now, we live in an affluent culture, friends. Even if you make a minimal income in our culture, you make more money than most people around the world. Sometimes our affluence is not the blessing we think it is. We talk about our material blessings. You know, this, oh, God bless me with this and bless. Sometimes those blessings choke out the spiritual life in us. Sometimes that vacation home, that second home, or, or you know, the bass boat and the fishing equipment keep us away from weekend worship that we desperately need. 
You know, sometimes the money that we spend on all of our kids' activities, we got them enrolled in everything under the sun that keeps us so busy. We don't have time to find a place of service where we can roll up our sleeves and do ministry. Sometimes the money that we spend on eating out and on clothes is money that should have been tithed to the Lord's work or given to the poor. Jesus would say, watch out for materialism. It's deceitful. It will choke out your spiritual life. You'll find yourself no longer following me. So will sexual sin. You know, I, I recently read a book by a young woman named Rachel Gilson, wonderful book, um, called Born Again This Way. Uh, Rachel tells the story of her own conversion. She went to school, college, and I think it was her second year of college, surrendered her life to Christ. But her life previous to Christ, she had been sexually active with a a number of girlfriends in high school. And so as she read the scripture now as a new believer, she realized that, you know, God says that sexual relationships are to be reserved for marriage. It's the superglue of a married life. And it's a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And so she determined that she was going to follow Christ in this regard. But then she got an invitation from a, a high school girlfriend to come visit her at her university. And she traveled there all the time saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not. But she found herself in bed with her old girlfriend. And as she was driving back to her own campus, she was wondering to herself, am I going to cover this up? You know, because if I do, if I conceal this, I have a sense it's going to be a trap I've fallen into again and again and again. So she determined she was going to trust a friend with this information, a spiritual mentor. And that's what she did. And she writes in her book that she broke the pattern of sin in her life. Now, sexual sin is a very devious thing. And for you, it may not be same-sex attraction. It may be pornography. For you, it may be sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, knowing that you you don't have a marriage relationship protecting this sexual intimacy. For you, it may, may just be an emotional attachment, a flirtation with somebody at work, even though you're married to somebody else. Okay, watch out, watch out for sexual sin. Let me give you a third one that's especially deceitful. It is the sin of unbelief. See, we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly secular at an alarming rate, and we're being told on a regular basis in the movies that we watch, in the social media we're on, and by our high school and college professors, you gotta be an idiot to still believe that the Bible is God's word or that Jesus rose from the dead or that God's standard of right and wrong is applicable today. Nobody believes that stuff. And it's easy for doubt to set in. And if you feed your doubts instead of feeding your faith, you're in trouble. If you don't push back, if you don't read something, that will put it in perspective, that will address those questions that are raised, those accusations against the faith. You may fall prey to unbelief. Now, by the way, if you're interested in a really good book in this regard, just finished a book recently called Reflections on the Existence of God. It is so good, I'm buying about 10 copies to give to friends. Reflections on the Existence of God, brilliant book, What I love about it is the chapters are like three pages long. (laughs) 
So if you like a book, you could read in, in little short bursts, reflections on the existence of God. Faith that last breaks patterns of sin. Number one, examine yourself. Number two, break patterns of sin. Number three, plan to persevere. Now, there was no way that I was going to cover this entire Hebrews 10 passage in one sermon. So I've got like two minutes to cover this third point. But here it is in a nutshell. Saving faith lasts because the people who have it plan to persevere. Saving faith is manifested in a plan to persevere. And walking away from Jesus just isn't an option. You know, these people are determined that with God's help, they're going to keep on keeping on. Now, the readers of this New Testament epistle, Hebrews, they had already been through a bit of persecution because of their faith in Christ. And so the writer is reminding them of this. He's saying, you know, you used to think that following Jesus was worth it. Remember that? Keep that in mind. Rekindle that earlier conviction you had. You know, look at verse 32. He says, remember those earlier days. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. You know, Jesus says something similar in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He's speaking to his followers who are beginning to drift away, and he says to them, you got to get back to your first love. I mean, remember when you initially fell in love with me, when you treasured a relationship with me? Don't drift. Go back to your first love. You know, I sometimes use a similar argument with couples who've come to me for marriage counseling, and they're, they're ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to get divorced. And I say, stop looking at each other from today's perspective and start looking back. What was it that you originally saw in that other person that caused you to fall in love? Come on, there was something there. You know, why did you decide one day that you, you, it would be a wonderful thing to spend the rest of your life married to them? Can we go back there? Okay, so look back. Look back. Two ways to stimulate this faith, to ensure that it, it's saving faith. The first is to look back. People with genuine saving faith periodically do that. They look back on their relationship with Jesus. You know, if it's growing stale, if it's growing cold, they look back, they remember what a treasure Jesus was when they first found him. They replay all the ups and downs that Jesus has taken them through. They remember all his faithfulness. And the flip side of this is that they also look forward. Last verse from Hebrews 10 that I'm going to read to you, verses 36 and 37. He says, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive, future, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, in just a little while, hang on. In just a little while, he's coming. He who is coming will come and will not delay. Now, here's the truth, friends. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, your faith will be eternally rewarded. So don't quit on Jesus. Don't quit on Jesus. Look back at where you've been with Jesus. Look forward to what he has in store for you. One day, this life, all its bad parts and its 
best parts will seem like a blink of an eye and all that will matter is Jesus, eternal new heaven and new earth and you don't wanna miss it. You don't want, saving faith lasts. Pray with me. Let's pray. Let me just walk you through the points that we covered from Hebrews 10 so you could do some quick evaluation. Do you have saving faith? Well, examine yourself, number one. Do you see there a desire, a hunger for a closer relationship with God through prayer and the reading of his word? Do you see a clear understanding of the gospel that you've surrendered your life to Jesus as savior and king? You see a commitment to church, you recognize that, oh, you need to be part of this group in order to flourish spiritually? Examine yourself. Number two, break patterns of sin. Is there a sin that you have fallen into routinely now and it's, gonna, it's going to cool your passion for Christ, friend? You're gonna walk away from him unless you learn to break that pattern. Do it now, repent now. Say, God, help me to break this pattern here on out. In fact, go public with it with somebody else. Say, hold me accountable. And do you plan to persevere? Do you say, yeah, I'm, you know, there's no way I'm giving this up. Not following Jesus is not an option. Lord Jesus, I know that you're, you're our keeper. You're the one who fires up our faith and we ask you to do that right now. We ask you to do it in the lives of people who've wandered away from you, but, but we love them. In some cases, they're members of our family or dear friends of ours and it breaks our heart to know that they're far from you right now and in danger of all the stuff we just read about in Hebrews 10. And so we pray even now, bring someone across their path who will point them back toward you. Break the hardness of their heart. Give them humility to come back on bended knee and say, Jesus, I want you to be savior and king. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.